You're listening to the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast, brought to you by John Lothian News. Meltem Demirers is a veteran investor, the chief strategy officer of CoinShares, a crypto-centric investment management firm that manages $750 million worth of digital assets. Before her current role with CoinShares, she was vice president of the Digital Currency Group in New York City. She's also a founding member of the World Economic Forum's Blockchain Council and testified before the House Financial Services Committee on Digital Currencies last year to discuss Libra. And now we have her on the Crypto Markets Wiki podcast. Meltem, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So uh, first things first, um, I wanted to ask you, do you have a personal favorite altcoin? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. My favorite cryptocurrency is, of course, Bitcoin. Uh, the gotcha. other one I spend a lot of time on is Tezos. I run a delegation ah. service on the Tezos network called Tezagator, and I've been involved with that project since 2016. But um, I don't play favorites. You know, the world is changing sure. so quickly, it feels hard to pick. Yeah, that's fair. No, lo- no love for Do- Dogecoin, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think Dentacoin is probably the funniest coin to me because it's, it still exists. <laughs> Which one? Dentacoin. It's the coin for dentists. Oh, man, I haven't even heard of that one. Man, got to gotta get man. on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly, clearly you got your finger on the pulse. So I wanted to talk about CoinShares first of all. So what are you and CoinShares' current goals, short-term, long-term, or both? So our goal is to provide professional financial services to investors to make the digital asset investing space more accessible. And so that's a, a pretty lofty goal. Uh, the way in which we do that, we started out with our family of exchange-traded products under mm-hmm. the brand name XBT provider. They're traded mm-hmm. on the NASDAQ and the European markets. We have, uh, and we have, sorry, on that side, we have a Bitcoin product, which is by far the largest and most popular, an Ethereum mm-hmm. product, a Ripple product, and a Litecoin product. Our products, unlike some other products in the market, um, shares are created and redeemed on a daily basis, and they track the price of the underlying closely. There's no premium because we can create and redeem as needed, so there's no supply constraints. Those have been in the market for the last five years, starting with Bitcoin. We launched Ethereum in 2018 and then uh, Litecoin and Ripple last year. And we're constantly looking at adding new products that our investors want. There are over 40,000 retail investors who hold those products. And it's also listed on various brokerage platforms, wealth management platforms throughout Europe. Um, We have a private fund side of our business where we have more active strategies catering to investors who are looking for actively managed exposure, both to cryptocurrencies and then also on the venture investing side, people who want exposure to the underlying equity of the companies in the private market that are building much of the infrastructure, the products, the services in the digital currency space. And then we have an active capital markets business where we provide OTC services, trading services, liquidity, options, derivatives, and lending to a variety of counterparties. So as an asset class, what do you think the value of Bitcoin is uh, compared to other asset classes? Yeah, so this is a 
conversation we have a lot. Um, I think with global macro investors, the conversation is always, well, what gives Bitcoin value? You know, in a world of, of people who have grown up in the age of Benjamin Graham style investing, the value investor obviously is one of those seminal books you read when you first start getting into the art of stock picking. I think Warren Buffett is someone, um, given the success of Berkshire Hathaway, who has really popularized the idea of, of value investing. And obviously, the predominant approach to investing for most individuals is based on equities markets, is based on this idea that, you know, your investment risk should match your age and your retirement expectations, et cetera. So I think for a world of, of investors that have been trained on this idea of value, the idea of investing in growth feels a little bit unusual. The other thing that's always interesting that people mm-hmm. ask about is the cash flow model, right? There's no cash flow that you can derive from Bitcoin. So applying a lot of your traditional valuation metrics is not going to work. Uh, when we talk to investors, a lot of what we compare Bitcoin to is commodities. And that's the world that my team comes mm-hmm. from, uh, which is really funny. We all, four of us, come from the commodities world. We all spent time in the commodities trading business. My business partners used to run a commodities hedge fund. So we really think about Mm -hmm. Bitcoin driving its value from three fundamental things, the three Ds, as we call them, uh, demand, depletion, Mm -hmm. or the supply schedule, and the dollar. So what I mean by that is Mm -hmm. Bitcoin has an unknown level of demand, and I think one of the things we're constantly researching and thinking about and looking at is where's demand for Bitcoin going to come from and who's going to want to hold it, transact with it, and how is that going to impact the fixed supply? which is the second D, depletion, 80% mm-hmm. of the Bitcoin to date has been mined. And we publish semi-annual research on the cost of producing Bitcoin in our CoinShares annual, semi-annual pardon mining report. We just did the fourth edition. One of our primary research questions there is what is the cost of production of a Bitcoin on average? How does that vary across geographies and really trying to understand the mm-hmm. break-even for Bitcoin mining? And so that gives us our second D, which is depletion. And then the third thing that we talk about in the context of what um, gives Bitcoin value is demand, pardon, uh, the dollar, excuse me. And that's really where it goes back to uh, most people who are thinking about allocating to Bitcoin have a diversified portfolio. And so uh, looking at what return is possible in other asset classes versus the return provided by Bitcoin is an important part of the question. Sure. And one of the interesting things is Bitcoin historically has been an uncorrelated asset when it comes to other asset classes. And one of the strengths of adding Bitcoin to your portfolio is you get diversified returns from having this uncorrelated asset. One of the bets we're making and one of the things that we all believe in at CoinShares is that Bitcoin is a long-term secular bet. We've been through three market cycles in Bitcoin so far. And obviously, there has been a high degree of volatility in Bitcoin. Uh, The volatility exceeds that of typical investment assets. But if we look at the secular trend over the last 11 years, Bitcoin has shown a trend that's going up and to the right. And we are of the belief that if Bitcoin continues on its trajectory, which we believe it will, the outcome is really binary. It's either going to be zero or it's going to be a lot more than zero. And so when we look at Bitcoin in the context of all of the other Mm -hmm. options for return that are out there, we believe that it presents an asymmetrical risk reward set. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that was actually a fantastic. You answered like three of my questions in that one answer. <laughs> so I also wanted to ask, do you think that the value of Bitcoin as an asset class is different in any way from other digital assets? Like, you know, different different digital assets 
may or may not work the same as, as Bitcoin. Some of them can be classified, for example, as a utility token, quote unquote. Sure. Is there something about Bitcoin that, that, that's different, that sets itself apart, or is it kind of just an apples and oranges kind of thing? Yeah, so this was actually the cornerstone of the testimony I gave in Congress during the Libra hearings over the summer, mm -hmm. the first set of hearings in July, that were focused on the Keep Big Tech Out of Finance bill that Maxine Waters, uh, the chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee, had put on the floor. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the conversation in that hearing was about what makes Bitcoin unique and why I personally do not believe that any other crypto assets out there are like Bitcoin. I think one of the analogies a lot of people make when they talk about other digital currencies is, oh, X is the next Bitcoin. Uh -huh. And I think that's a little bit misleading. Bitcoin is really unique because it was the first of this generation of digital currencies. And it's also important to appreciate that digital currencies have existed before. There was eGold and DigiCash and other predecessors mm. to Bitcoin that were created by some of the original cypherpunks when they were David trying Chalman, to figure out yeah. how to embed money into the internet, yeah. right? So digital money has existed before. But what makes Bitcoin so unique, in my view, is three primary things. And I'll run through this quickly. Number one, Bitcoin as a technology, the underlying protocol is really unique mm -hmm. because it's open source software. Yeah. The Bitcoin core project, which is the primary code base for Bitcoin, has been around for a long time. I've spent a number of years interacting with the Bitcoin core, and anyone can make uh, suggestions to upgrade or improve the protocol. Anyone can download the protocol. Anyone can look at the open source project. Mm -hmm. It is a really, really vibrant open source software development community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really different from many of the other coins who have proprietary or closed software development ecosystems mm -hmm. or just a small group of token holders who are developing the protocol. The second thing that's really unique about Bitcoin is the network incentives. So again, in our mining report, a lot of what we focus on is understanding the unique incentives for people to spend money in the form of uh, silicon and, and ASIC chips, as well as electricity, mm -hmm. in order to maintain the security and integrity of the Bitcoin network. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me is over the last 10 years, there's been a number of attempts to co-opt Bitcoin's code base during the block size wars. Mm -hmm. There have been a number of attempts to co-opt the Bitcoin network, especially in 2017 during the forks when uh, miners were refusing to continue mining one chain or the other um, and trying to express a preference for protocol outcomes, and none of them have worked. Mm -hmm. So from a resilience perspective on both the protocol side and the network side, there's a significant incentive and sort of proven resilience within the Bitcoin network to resist some of these external efforts to control what happens with Bitcoin. And the third piece that's the most important and frankly the most exciting to me as an investor and someone who's really interested in the broader trend of digitization and open source financial ecosystems is that on top of Bitcoin, anyone with an internet connection and the ability to download a software client mm -hmm. can access the Bitcoin network. Yeah. Bitcoin is an open permissionless network, almost like the internet, but the internet for money, I think is an analogy that really resonates with people. And so the fact is that over the last 10 years, billions of dollars of value have been created by companies that are building on top of this open permissionless network. Anyone can build whatever they want on top of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Anyone can interact with the network. Anyone can um, look at the code base. And I think this open permissionless network is such a potent and powerful feature of, of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. 
the last piece that that contributes to is Bitcoin, more than all of these other tokens and digital currencies out there, mm -hmm. is not just an asset or an investment. It is a social movement. Um, there is a really strong philosophical bent to much of the conversation in the Bitcoin community. Mm -hmm. I think certainly there are other protocols that have really vibrant and active communities. The Ethereum community, for example, I think is one that has tremendous degree of creativity, mm -hmm. lots of experimentation, people building all sorts of innovative products on top of it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these other cryptocurrencies that are emerging don't have that same really vibrant, really ideological social community around them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, really challenging to bootstrap an open source software project and an open source network in a community if there isn't a strong set of believers who are ideologically motivated to continue participating in that community. Yeah. So you touched on it a couple of times, but I wanted to mention CoinShares published a report just a couple of months ago saying that a single province in China, Sichuan, controls about 54% of Bitcoin's hash rate. Do you think that this could potentially cause problems down the line? Like what if the Chinese government decides to seize all those machines and and gain control of the network? That's a concern that seems to be talked about a lot. Yeah, so I think the, the topic of China comes up a lot in every conversation, <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. regardless of, of what it is. Obviously, um, the President of the United States has spent a lot of time over the last year uh, renegotiating trade agreements with China. Obviously, the project that China is embarking on to digitize the renminbi mm -hmm. and to implement a national sort of central bank digital currency, as people call it, is of great interest. When it comes to the mining side, one of the reasons we started doing research around Bitcoin mining is there are a lot of interesting beliefs that people have around Bitcoin mm -hmm. mining. And one of the things we really try to do at CoinShares that we're very focused on and, and hopefully we, we do well, but if we don't, I'd love to hear from <laughs> your <laughs> listeners and have them tell us that we can do better. Mm -hmm. One of the things we're really focused on is looking at facts and gathering empirical data sure. to try to understand what's actually happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. So the mining report, um, Chris Ben Dixon, who's our head of research, he spends a lot of time talking to miners and, and untangling what's happening in, in different parts of the mining ecosystem. One of the interesting things we found was the distribution of miners, yes, predominantly located in China. Mm. But there is a major trend that people don't realize is 75% of Bitcoin mining uses renewable sources of energy. Mm. And so, yes, we have concerns about the fact that so much of Bitcoin mining is located in China. But an interesting trend we've been seeing is more and more onshore mining development in the United States, notably Blockstream, a large company in the industry, Fidelity, as well as a number of other firms have started building onshore mining capabilities here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Some of those facilities have gone live over the last six months or so. And then there's another large mining firm, Bitfury, which has been building out infrastructure in Europe and now in the U.S. as well that's building extensively. Mm -hmm. And so in my view, as more and more sovereign nations start to understand the importance of participating in the Bitcoin network, mm -hmm. we're going to see more and more infrastructure get built out in various parts of the world. The interesting thing about China is the proximity to ASIC production. So the fact that ChipFab happens in these provinces makes it easier to get ASICs to these facilities. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece is really all about the cost of power. And again, this is where the renewable energy piece comes in. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of hydroelectric power in China that's underutilized. Yeah. And so if you can get low cost or no cost access to power, that greatly reduces one of the primary inputs into the equation of the cost of mining a Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that's been one of the things historically that has been advantageous um, to miners in, in China. Now, that being said, I think, again, as we look at the data, as people who are passionate about Bitcoin and the development of the Bitcoin network with the data, I think a lot of people are starting to invest in building capacity in other parts of the world to avoid some of the challenges around centralization of the Bitcoin network in specific jurisdictions or specific domiciles where potentially there could be political threats or in fact, uh, today there was a great piece in Masari's um, newsletter about the threat of coronavirus on Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, as we have more data and we look at the facts and circumstances, I think a lot of people are looking at that and saying, how do we proactively get, get ahead of this? But in terms of the Chinese government co-opting Bitcoin mining, I think, you know, that's something that's been talked about in the community for the last six years now. Hasn't happened yet. So I am less concerned about that. What I am more concerned about is states that have historically been sanctioned or put on blacklists like Iran, like Venezuela, um, like North Korea, mm -hmm. participating in Bitcoin mining and potentially causing a split in the network because there is a desire to sanction coins that are generated in those jurisdictions. So a lot of people, as I'm sure that you've no doubt heard, are talking about being feeling frustrated with the current state of the United States kind of attitude and general framework for regulating cryptocurrency. Do you think that that frustration is warranted or are the current regulations perhaps beneficial in some way or maybe a combination of both? Sure. Um, look, on regulation, I have a very simple view. Okay. The financial industry is one of the most regulated industries in the world, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the United States. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting about the United States versus, say, a place like China, mm -hmm. in China, hierarchy flows from the top. The People's Republic of China has one leader. His name is Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. And he, when he makes a decision and when that government makes a decision, it gets implemented because the hierarchy flows straight down from the top. And that's how that works. Mm -hmm. In the United States, we have a very different approach. One of the founding principles of this country was the idea of checks and balances, which is why we have separate branches of the government. And it's also one of the reasons why we have various agencies who oversee different parts of the financial system. Mm -hmm. Some of the challenges in the U.S. are we have separated financial regulation based on what's historically been the way markets have been structured. So we have one organization, the SEC, that manages securities. Mm -hmm. We have the CFTC, which oversees commodities and markets. We have the FBI and FinCEN and DOJ, which oversee criminal activity in financial markets using financial assets. Mm -hmm. We have um, the CFPB, which oversees consumer fairness. We have the IRS, which oversees taxation. And then we have the states, um, which have their own rights. States in the United States mm -hmm. control money transmission and money transmission licensing because interstate commerce is a right that's governed by states themselves. And so in the United States, I think there's a, an interesting challenge because everything we've built from a regulatory perspective has been constructed around the way markets have historically functioned. Mm -hmm. But there's really no clear idea of where digital currencies fit mm -hmm. in this potpourri of agencies and entities and organizations that oversee the current financial system. Mm -hmm. According to the IRS, Bitcoin is property. According to the SEC, Bitcoin is not a security, but some cryptocurrencies are securities that could become not securities, but then maybe become securities again. <laughs> According to the CFTC, Bitcoin is not a commodity, but swaps on it are regulated by the CFTC. 
So there are all of these interesting challenges that stem from the fact that our regulatory regime has been created to accommodate a world that is no longer reality. The fact of the matter is, and, and I think this is to me the most important thing to understand about Bitcoin and regulation, historically regulation and financial industry has been defined by physical jurisdiction. Hmm. So if I have a physical bank or a physical asset management firm and I have an office in New York, I know that I'm regulated by the state of New York and the United States government. Mm -hmm. The issue with Bitcoin is this. If I have a Bitcoin-focused company, a financial services company, mm -hmm. but I don't take custody of customer funds, and I don't have physical domicile in the United States, but United States customers have access to my product because it's on the internet, mm -hmm. it has no jurisdiction, it operates 24-7, it doesn't fit into a specific regulated market, mm -hmm. Who has jurisdiction over that product or service? And this is really at the crux of the questions that are being explored here. We have the same challenge, by the way, with the internet when it came to peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, right? Yeah. When the government tried to shut down Napster and Kazaa and all these file sharing sites and tried to shut down the Pirate Bay, same issue. When there is no clear definition of physical jurisdiction, it's very hard to define the regulatory perimeter that should apply. And I think in, in cryptocurrency, we're seeing the same challenge. And the interesting thing is, as the world becomes increasingly digital, as financial services become part of the broader technology ecosystem, it's my belief that in the future, every technology company will also be a financial services company. Hmm. Because capital on demand is something that's long overdue, right? Nobody goes to a bank branch anymore. I download an app, two clicks, three clicks, I get what I need in terms of financial services. That, in my view, is the future we're headed towards. And so I think the real question here for regulators is how are they going to operate in a world that doesn't have materiality in the physical world where jurisdiction is no longer relevant? Do you think stable coins are probably going to be the future or are they going to be more, more like Bitcoin? Oh, stable coins are the antithesis of Bitcoin. But I think stable coins are going to be a huge part of what happens to the digital currency ecosystem over the next few words, uh, years. I just wrote a piece called Digital Currency War mm -hmm. that you can read on my Substack blog. And basically what I talked about is where I think the digital currency landscape is heading with central bank digital currencies and how, in my view, ultimately Bitcoin emerges as the neutral medium of exchange um, mm -hmm. in the midst of nation-based corporations and potentially even individuals competing in these currency wars. So Libra, when Libra was announced, right, China was very kind of like, no, nothing to do with cryptocurrency. The United States, obviously, as we've been talking about, we're, we're kind of still working things out. And now the Fed is talking about, well, now not only is China talking about a yuan-based stablecoin, right? But the, F the Fed is also talking about like, oh, well, what if we had a digital currency? Like, what are the applications of that? So do you think that uh, Libra sort of pushed institutions that were previously very like, no, we want nothing to do with this into perhaps considering the applications of, say, a nationalized stable coin or just stable coins in general? Yeah, look, I think Libra fundamentally changed the conversation because Facebook was willing to go to a place that a lot of people weren't ready to go to. Mm -hmm. After Libra, every central bank suddenly got very crypto curious yeah. because all of a sudden, as they started playing out the game in their minds, they started to see that unless they make moves now, there is a very real possibility that the ability of governments to implement fiscal and monetary policy is going to be massively reduced 
due to the fact that corporations can issue private script. Mm. And I think this, again, like this plays into my broader view on some of the interesting changes that are happening in our world. Again, like people are no longer really defined by the country in which they were born, by the country in which they live. Um, we see an increasing number of people who don't identify with a particular corporation. Mm -hmm. They're gig workers or they're freelancers. We see people are increasingly mobile. They move around a lot more. And I think at the end of the day, like the way we identify ourselves, you know, it used to be you would go abroad and, and you would meet people and you say, oh, I'm an American and that was your identity or, oh, I'm Turkish and that was your identity. Mm -hmm. And I think in the world we live in today, like the country from which you come and the language you speak is less and less relevant because we're doing everything digitally online and we're more interconnected than ever. And so these barriers of physicality are no longer as, as relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think that also applies to monetary regimes and currencies. When I look at you know, the world today, most people in the world, what they want, what they want to hold in their bank account is not their local currency. They mm -hmm. want dollars because dollars are the de facto currency of the global financial system right. of and so what's interesting to me is like there's this real opportunity to embed money into the way we interact online mm -hmm. and that just hasn't happened yet and so in my view all of these central bank digital currencies you know there's a lot of surveillance that's not possible uh, you have the ability to implement monetary and fiscal policy directly at the wallet level you have a lot more control and fine-tuning capability over what happens in your economy but i think at the end of the day what people want and the experience we want to have is for money to be as seamless and borderless as we are and our information is and our relationships are. And I think that's where the challenge is going to be for central bank digital currencies is do they have the capability to build that more quickly than we can build that with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And my money, by the way, is on the Bitcoin community. Gotcha. You told Congress last year, right, that uh, Libra is not a cryptocurrency. There is a lot of nuance between different cryptocurrencies, but why do you think that people call Libra a cryptocurrency? Yeah, I think when Libra first came out, they themselves used the word cryptocurrency. And in my view, it was an attempt to um, style themselves after Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. If you think of the way that most cryptocurrencies like ICOs kind of styled themselves in 2017, 2018, a lot of the narrative was we are the next Bitcoin. We are cryptocurrency just like Bitcoin because everyone wants the effect of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's the best known yeah. cryptocurrency, has the largest market cap by far. So I think part of the attempt here is Facebook was trying to find something that people would understand. People understand cryptocurrency, so they use the term cryptocurrency. But a lot of the distinction, again, that I tried to make in my testimony is at the protocol layer, at the network layer, and at the application layer, kind of those three layers of the Bitcoin stack, Libra is nothing like Bitcoin. Libra is backed by actual assets. Mm -hmm. It's actually a pooled investment vehicle where the principal belongs to people who post the principal and the interest gets paid to association members. It's kind of like a mutual fund, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are actual physical assets that you pay in and get out when you create and redeem Libra tokens. And that sounds like a mutual fund or an ETF to me. There's an AP and there's a creation and redemption process. So that's not a cryptocurrency. At the protocol layer, the development of Libra is owned by the Facebook Corporation. They're trying to open source parts of the code, but at the end of the day, the code is controlled by one entity, and that's Facebook. At the network layer, the only people who are allowed to participate in the network are the members of the Libra Association. It's the 
opposite of Bitcoin, which is an open network that anyone can participate in. Mm -hmm. In the Libra network, only an authorized group of people who, by the way, are shareholders of and friends of the Facebook corporation are allowed to participate. And that's not a cryptocurrency. And then at the application layer, um, one of the most interesting things is while Libra is going to become more open in the future, according to to what they're planning, at the end of the day, the only applications that are going to be launched on Libra day one and the applications that are going to be promoted on Libra are exactly like applications you would see on any other app store, right? If I want to promote my product or build a product on the Apple app store, I pay Apple 30% of my revenues and I have to get permission from the Apple store. Same thing with the Google Play store. Libra is going to be no different. If I want to build on top of the Libra network, I need permission from Facebook and the Libra Association. And I need um, to probably have some sort of arrangement or revenue sharing agreement. I need the ability to have access to the system, data in the system. And I think Facebook's plans right now are for the majority of the features in the Libra network to be available exclusively to Facebook itself, meaning that proprietary applications are going to be prioritized over third-party developer applications, which is a common problem with the internet and tech and platforms in general is third-party developers have very little control over their ability to get to the end market. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. The Libra, so Libra obviously is still in development, and David Marcus and other representatives of Libra and Calibra have said uh, repeatedly, we're not going to launch this until we come up with a way to do it that makes regulators in every region that we plan to launch in happy. What do you think they need to do to make regulators happy at this point? Yeah, look, I think... um, Last week, Libra suggested that they may just use U.S. dollar and not have a currency basket, mm. which clearly you know, they're trying to appeal to the U.S. government. Sure. Um, in Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in the fall, he talked a lot about China as the big threat and Libra as the natural option for the U.S. to compete with China, mm. uh, which I thought was you know, a, a nice way to use this uh, political sort of opportunity to, to sort of pile on this, this overall China rhetoric that's, that's going on in this country. Mm-hmm. Look, I think at the end of the day, Facebook is a privately owned corporation, mm-hmm. right? Facebook's only obligation is to its shareholders. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, in the U.S., one of the things that's great about this country and um, that I certainly agree with is that private corporations and private citizens should have the ability to engage in private enterprise and to benefit and profit from the value they create for other people, right? That's Mm -hmm. sort of been the foundation of the American economy, and that's the reason why so many people view America as a place of opportunity. That's why we have a thriving startup ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I do think that Facebook has every right to build something like Libra, and if people want to use it, they should use it. So I emphasize with Facebook trying to build something new and innovative and bring it to market. And I think some of the approaches that have been taken on the regulatory side feel a bit draconian. Mm. And I think, again, there's a significant challenge here because the lines are starting to get blurred. Like, where does the U.S. government mandate end and begin? And should they be in the practice of choosing winners and, and losers? That's always been one of the challenges. And so I do emphasize with Facebook's desire to, to launch a new product and bring a new service to, to market. On the flip side, the thing I take issue with is I don't think most people understand the difference between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and mm-hmm. Ethereum. Your average person has no idea what the difference is, difference is between Bitcoin and Ethereum, let alone anything else. Sure. And 
you know, I'll talk to people and they're like, yeah, you know, Ethereum is just another type of Bitcoin because this stuff is, it's new. It's hard to understand. When you say the word protocol or consensus mechanism to your average person, like their eyes glaze over and they're completely uninterested in hearing what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And so I think the big challenge here is, and, and what I take issue with is I don't want people to conflate Libra with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard thing here because a lot of people will use Libra and they will not understand what rights they're giving up. It goes back to the issue of consent, which is a big problem on the internet already, mm -hmm. like privacy and what you're consenting to. And so that's really my concern is like, we have a population that generally is not very financially savvy, is not very technologically savvy. And we're giving them something that could be very useful and very interesting for them, but that also carries a significant amount of risk. And if we don't articulate to people what those risks are and enable them to make an informed decision, that is what's more concerning to me. And that's a difficult problem to solve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Melton, it's been so much fun having you on the show here today. I feel like I learned a whole lot. Hopefully our listeners have too. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we uh, sign off for the day? No, thanks for having me on. Um, hopefully what I said makes sense. Um, I, I love this topic. I love this yeah. industry. So I get very passionate and very excited when anyone wants to talk to me about it. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter. I have open DMs. I'm at melt underscore dem or at coinshares co. That's coinshares co. So if you have any questions, any follow up, you can find us easily on Twitter. Being a child of the internet, I spend a lot of my time on the internet talking mm -hmm. to strangers. So <laughs> looking yeah. forward to hearing from your listeners. I I, uh, I came up in the 90s, so I had a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. I miss I miss chat rooms, but now we have like a global public yeah. chat room called Twitter. So it's yeah. pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us on the show today. Uh, we had a blast having you. And uh, I think I possibly speak for both of us when I say that we're curious to see how where this industry goes next and see how Libra in particular unfolds over the rest of this year. It's going to be fun. It always is. This industry is never boring. For more news, videos, and podcasts like this, head over to johnlothiannews.com.